This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Open New Reviews. Open New gives Shopify brands the tools to import their reviews from Amazon or eBay and helps them convert up to 40% more customers by supercharging their reviews with the power of AI. Stay tuned for a very special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 67 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Andrew Suzuka, the founder and CEO of Odomot. Based in Brooklyn and sold in over 2,000 stores, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Wegmans, Odomot is a delicious, veggie-filled tomato sauce brand made with over nine organic vegetables and healthy oil. In this episode, Andrew shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Westchester, New York with four sisters and dreams of becoming a stockbroker, to attending NYU where he launched a marketing and promotions company called Key Factors, where he made a $10,000 mistake to climbing the ladder at Noise, which led to becoming an expert CFO for agencies including Bayard Advertising. He talks with us about his aha moment in creating Odomot, how they launched nationally in Whole Foods within their first six months of launching, and why attending trade shows as an early-stage food company has played an important role in their success as a brand. If you like what you hear, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Odomot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, sir. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. I'm uh, excited to uh, to be here. Awesome. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? So originally, I grew up in Westchester, which is about an hour north of, of New York City, and um, then I ended up coming to school here at NYU, and I've been stuck ever since. So I'm actually living in um, in Brooklyn now, with uh, married, two kids, the whole nine yards. Nice. Don't have the dog yet. The dog is coming. <laughs> Um, and so when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did I want to be? Um, I, I wanted to, from, I guess one of the things I really enjoyed doing was picking out stocks and stock trading, to be honest with you. How old were um, you when you knew about stocks? Yeah, I think I was in like my first year of high school or something like that, or maybe younger, because I had a few stocks that were left over from my grandparents, and I started understanding what that was, and they gave it to me for college. And so mm. I um, I ended up like doing some of these virtual, like something called the AT&T Collegiate Investment Challenge, which was this little stock trading, virtual stock trading thing back in, it must've been like in the 1990s, like 1992 or three or something like that. And I remember going over to the payphone in high school and you had to call up your trades. It was kind of neat. It was kind of fun. They gave you like a million dollars of virtual money. And, um, and I, and I, so I thought I'd, I'd be a stockbroker when I grew up one day. Um, I remember laying out all the newspapers. I didn't have, you know, there wasn't really the internet at that point or not much really. And, um, and I would look at all these stocks and understand how they were going up and down and create my own trends. And, um, and then in college, I worked for, for a broker. And then I learned how, uh, how really boring that line of business was and uh, quickly 
quickly pivoted out, pivoted out to uh, marketing. Interesting. And did you have any other um, jobs kind of before then, or were you just really focused on stocks and were like, I'm going to go to school and be a stockbroker? Or were you, you know, a waiter anywhere or like, what were yeah. you kind of doing before then? Sure. I mean, I would always, I guess I always had something going on. I uh, used to be a camp counselor, but I was like way back when worked at the grocery store, like probably every high school kid. And I always thought I was the fastest, <laughs> like how quick can I, can I get these people checked out? Um, <laughs> and the, um, you know, and it was in, but I also like one of my first, first businesses, honestly, was selling cookies to my neighbors. Um, I really enjoyed cooking. I would make pasta from scratch and pizza from scratch. And I was probably eight, nine, 10 years old, like same age as my, my son and daughter. And, um, you know, we were getting in the kitchen now. And I used to sell, and I found recently a menu that I had when I was a kid. Um, and it would say $1 for a dozen cookies, $1.25 for the chocolate chip, <laughs> dozen chocolate chip cookies. And it's, and it's really, and it was really fun. I used to just go up and down and, and up the street in the wagon and, um, and they would buy the cookies and I keep the money. Um, besides that, I would tag around with my dad um, who had a, a construction business and I'd help him on different jobs and things. So really understanding some of the businesses through him and, and creating invoices. And so business plus the love of food and making a couple of dollars here and there kind of, I think that set a lot of the foundational work for, for what I ended up doing later and even do today. That's interesting. Did you have any um, siblings growing up? Four younger sisters. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah. They got it, got it, got a few, few to take care of, but um yeah, it's 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 uh, it's nice. I was the the only guy and, and the older brother in the family. Sounds like a full house. And so, what did your mom do? So my mom was she recently retired. She was a researcher for sickle cell anemia up in the Bronx at the College of Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, she did that for something like forty plus years, which is nuts. So she wow. you know for, you know really dedicated dedicated her life to finding a cure for sickle cell anemia which wow. unfortunately is still out there, but you know, there's a lot of advancements over there. So that's cool. And then my dad had the construction business. My dad also um, owned a sushi restaurant for a while um, up in Westchester, um, which I would love to go to and eat, but didn't really want to work much at. <laughs> so I would go there with friends and say, hey, come on, let's, let's go get dinner tonight. Um, and that was always really fun. Cool. So it looks like you had um, quite a bit of exposure to entrepreneurship at an early age and you, you know, were cooking those cookies and selling them for a dollar for a dozen. Um, when you were in college, you went to NYU, what were you studying? And, you know, I know you wanted to be a stockbroker. It sounds like you had a little bit of experience in that, but um, what kind of made you shift away from that? Yeah, I think it was the, so while at NYU, my last job was selling advertising for the school newspaper and it was it was nice and they'd give me 10 percent for a full page ad and make a hundred bucks on a thousand page ad thousand dollar uh, full page ad um, for the official nyu newspaper but the problem was that the the sale was easy but the return on investment for say the restaurants I was selling to or whoever I would I would I would go pitch wasn't there like they would say Andrew you like you but the, I'm not getting my return on this full page ad that we ran with you. And I said, how about this? Give me a thousand dollars. And so I did that, but you, if you can't keep doing something that you, that you don't believe in, right? right? Because you start to lose motivation, you start to lose face. And I really appreciated all these, these companies and local clients. And I wanted to help them reach college students. I mean, I went to NYU, I had access to all the dorms. And so what I ended up doing is say, and I ended up going actually to Blue Man Group um, as my first client, because I had a student special. And I said, hey, give, you know, can you pay me to promote your student specials? Um, you can go see the Blue Man Group at the last minute for 20 bucks with your student ID. Give me flyers. I'll make flyers, whatever they are, and we'll promote you. And I, that ended up working. I ended up selling out, selling out. And I said, Andrew, can you do FIT? Can you do Columbia? Next thing you know, Pantene Pro-V came and said, can you do the Northeast for this contest? The next thing you know, MTV called and said, can you do 20 markets on one night to celebrate our 20th you know, uh, anniversary? So a lot of things just kind of started spiraling while I was in college. Um, that was a, an extension of what I was doing. I was helping the newspaper. I was helping companies reach college students. 
And so I ended up helping more national companies, big companies help college students, not just New York City, but ended up really in college launching my marketing and promotions company. Um, so that was like my real, my first real business, which I ended up running for 10 years and really gave me an appreciation for grassroots marketing, brand building, brand ambassadors, and, and that whole world. Wow. And so that was called what? Key Factors? Yes, you did your homework. I did my homework. <laughs> and so uh, key factors, I mean, that's a long time to spend on a business. Um, that's yeah. a lot of learnings. So what are some of the key, you know, insights, learnings, yeah. highlights from that experience that you took away with you? Yeah, so the $10,000 mistake, and that sucks. <laughs> when you're in college and you make a $10,000 mistake, that definitely sucks. Wow. Um, so I had, um, we're buying media, getting into media buying as well. We do guerrilla marketing, street marketing, brand ambassadors, all this kind of work. But I started wanting to buy billboards for clients and things like that. And so we had um, a verbal commit from a, I think it was Tishman Spire, honestly, um, one of these big development companies that, that was putting up restaurants in Rockefeller Center, et cetera. And they said, okay, Andrew, we want to buy these subway ads in Rockefeller Center. You have an access to Viacom, uh, TD Outdoor. Um, can you get us a contract? I said, sure, I'll get it to you. You know, here it is. Um, they said, okay, we'll sign it tomorrow. I ended up signing contract on their behalf for $10,000 to reserve some space for some billboards, some subway ads. The next day they backed out of it and said, we changed our mind. I go back to Viacom and I say, hey, my client changed our mind. They're like, Andrew, we, you know, we can't, we can't take this back. <laughs> and so I literally had to eat 10,000 bucks, which, um, or didn't eat to pay the $10,000, right? Cause, right? Cause like, it was not like that, you know, I don't come from that. So it's not like, let me go put this on a credit card or go ask the parents for it. No, like you're going to wash your hair with, with 99 cent dish soap for a while until you have that paid back. And so, you know, you just, you need to learn. You're not going to learn that type of stuff out of a textbook and you're not going to remember it if you don't actually experience some of this stuff. So you really have to get out there and you could say, hey, you should have known to not sign a contract on someone's behalf. But I don't know, I, I grew up like take people on their word, right? Shake right. your hand, take someone on their word and and when someone, you know, just backs out, it's like, okay, I guess I really got to do this, some of this stuff by the book, right? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that kind of stunk. That's, I mean, we had that, we had another, I learned so many things. I mean, running street teams, especially when you're dealing with, you deal with all kinds of people when you're doing that kind of stuff, because, you know, you're out there, you're doing grassroots marketing. Um, we would have people that would have to go and hand out samples for us, right? And say samples for MTV and things like that. And and I would kind of have this spidey sense that they didn't really do the job. They said they did it and they would send me photos, but they would send like 10 photos. And you can't prove to someone that you, that you hand out 10,000 samples of whatever through like 10 photos. Like that's like, you know, maybe that's scalable, but it's not like, it's not a full audit. So I would end up calling some of the warehouses where we had product in and I'd ask the warehouse, hey, can you go into our storage unit and let me know? Cause it should be empty. And they tell me, Andrew, most of your product is still in here. <laughs> but, oh, no. so you know i would get that i mean i could go on and on we would you know and you just have to it just kind of draws to us the conclusion or kind of like i guess this theme that when you go into business you you can't scale a business on your own right when i went to blue man group i said let me do this one dorm that i live in and i'm going to market every student i put i grab glue sticks and i glued flyers to everyone's door and why you hated me but it worked Right, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then they say, "Can you do more dorms? Can you do more schools?" Well, I don't go to FIT, and I don't go to Columbia, and I don't go to school up in Northwestern, and all these other things. As we grew, so you have to grow to grow your business, and to grow your business acumen, and to to really grow your your experience. You're gonna have to work with more and more people. You're gonna have to um, trust people, and you're gonna have to find people that you can trust and to partner with. And so it just yep. becomes really key to selecting your business partners, growing your network smartly, but also um, trust, but verify, right? So you, you can trust people, but sometimes you still have to verify that they're doing what they say they're going to do, or at least they're doing what you wanted them to do, or just verify that everything's okay. And it's, right. and it's just, it's, it's important because if you don't do the verification part, 
it's you start to lose touch, right? And if you if you're not willing to get your hands dirty, and if you think you're too good to take out the trash, well, you know, it's going to be a real it's going to be real hard for people to appreciate you, to respect you, and to really, you know, bust their butts for you. Right. right. So if you want people to be the extension of you, then you gotta you gotta give it all for them every single day. So what did you do when you were, you know, back, you know, step back to um, having to help um, these companies uh, get access to other college students that weren't attending NYU? How did you find people at these other colleges or how did you provide that service and kind of scale it um, right. relying on other people? Right. So, um, well, you um, you break into the dorms. And then, um, I don't <laughs> you, you, um, you, you, well, we would, we would stand outside. I would stand outside and I would, I would get my, I would, so I'd start by getting my local, I would start to get a local group of say fellow students at NYU, um, that I would trust. And I'd say, Hey, you're in charge of recruiting people at FIT. You're in charge of recruiting people up at Columbia. And we would go there and maybe wait outside the dorms, um, ask people if they'd want to make a few bucks. Um, show them the type of work we're not, you know, we're not promoting some dance club or stuff like that. We're promoting, um, you know, good brands, you know, things that people know of or Broadway shows they knew of, um, record labels that people know of before the strokes really became the strokes. We're promoting them like a bunch of labels and it was fun because you get to go to free shows and things like that. So we, we, we did a lot of word of mouth. We would then put posters up, you know, the tear offs, we would have people write to us and then you end up giving people jobs. You give them a job here, a job there. You see, you know, spot check them. Hey, are they outside the concerts? Are they there on time? Are they picking up the materials on time? Um, do they seem into it? And you just have to, you just start to grow your network. For the MTV, when we want, we essentially need to go national right off the bat. And they called me and we had a few weeks to assemble an, a nationwide um, street team, right? Wow. And I'm sure at that point there were I'm, there were companies out there I could have called, but I would have not made any money and we would have outpriced ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so for that one, I had been working, one of my clients was, and this is this is the fun part because you have these problems, which are opportunities, but you have to get really creative on how to solve them, right? So it was this, it was this challenge like, hey, Andrew, we heard about you, we're MTV, we wanna do a national campaign with you. The answer, first of all, has to be yes right? It doesn't right. matter how you get it done. The answer has to be yes. Yep. Second part is you go freak out and figure out how to get it done. Right? Yep. And so I thought about how to get it done. And in this specific case, I said, I have a client and I have contacts with a nationwide network of student travel agencies. Let me speak to them because they're on college campuses or near all these music venues. And they're going to have responsible people because they're showing up for a nine to five job. But the work I need done is at night. So who doesn't want to make an extra 50, 100, whatever it is, bucks and get some free tickets to a concert. So ended up working and, and building my network out nationally in that way initially, which ended up really working out well. And it's like people are going to do a good job because you, you're reaching out to them at their place of work saying, hey, do you want a side job? And it came in through a reference. So yeah, that's that's how we solve that um, that one. But every oh. every opportunity is going to have some type of challenge and you just have to be ready to to pivot. It's I call it being comfortable, being uncomfortable, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're if you're gonna be squeamish and you're and you're not, if you can't kind of thrive off of being in these different and challenging situations and and really get excited about, hey, how how do I jump over this thing, right? Then it's then being an entrepreneur or doing something that hasn't been done before is not for you. And that's okay, right? I can't, if, if my kids or friends want to go, I have friends that work at the VA, I have friends that have regular nine to five jobs. I don't have many friends that are crazy enough to actually go do the things that I've done, which is go start this business or go start that or fail at this and be okay with doing okay with that. Like it's, it's, it's kind of like it's, it can be a stressful thing for a lot of people. Yes. Right. Um, and especially when you start to get to the point of, Hey, I'm gonna, I wanna get married, or now I have kids and there's a need for stability, right? Um, if I were not married, if I wasn't having kids, um, I, would, I would probably be taking way, way more risks. So you have to kind of calculate what you do later in life. And I feel like younger, you know, and I'm 43 right now. So if I was still in my 20s or 30s or unmarried and without kids, I'd be taking a few more chances for sure. Right. And I can also have taken a few more bigger misses. 
as well. Well, so it's interesting we you say that because you are a founder. So I feel like yeah. you have <laughs> taken a risk actually. So no, totally. We'll but to I balance it. That. Yeah. And I balance yeah. it though. Cause I also, so I have the nine to five job, which not everyone knows. So I have a mm. nine to five job as a CFO of a, you know, fairly decent sized media agency. But I'm also at my nine, my five to nine job, which is a CEO of Audemars Foods. Interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to go into kind of what that's been like um, mm -hmm. running a business, full, uh, basically full time, but in your part time hours, right? It's yeah, it's a lot yeah. of work. Um, but before we get there, I know you worked at Noise, which is a creative agency, right after Key Factors. But Key Factors was your business. So how did you did you shut it down? How did you kind of we move say, from that? Yeah, we folded it in and 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 brought our clients over. Um, okay. so it was essentially like an aqua hire where they said, Hey, let's work together. And I focused on young adults, noise focused on young adults. I had known them. I had worked on campaigns with them before. So they were essentially a client, not essentially they were, they were a client of mine. And then I, you know, at that point, honestly, I had gotten, was about to get married and I was like, okay, let me get a little more stability here, but still do what I love. Mm -hmm. And I liked the people I had a chance to work with them before. And I was like, you know what? I like everyone here. This, this will be cool. And I came in and, you know, ended up, you know, uh, being there for, for a while. I don't even know how many years it was. I feel like it was like a decade. It's um, funny that you talk about stability because I feel like, you know, I grew up in a household. My dad was an architectural photographer and it was a roller coaster. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You it, get the jobs you don't. Ups and downs. Yeah, it's lots of sushi. moving houses. <laughs> right. It's either sushi or just the rice. That's what yeah. I half jokingly say, right? Like, let's right. see how this week goes. <laughs> You're either riding in like a Land Rover or a tourist wagon, you know, it's like, you know, or, or hitchhiking or walking. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, this is like, this is good for me. I'm just going to go get my exercise, you know? Yep. <laughs> we'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. A major blocker for Shopify brands is getting reviews from Amazon, eBay, or AliExpress into Shopify to boost conversions and generate more sales. With OpenNew, simply import those reviews in just a few clicks, and once your reviews are in, OpenNew works 24-7 to select the best reviews at scale. With OpenNew, you can receive up to 10% conversion uplift compared to other competitors. Remember, you only have one chance to make a good first impression, so give your Shopify store the best chance of success with open new reviews. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can get 20% off for a lifetime on all open new plans for a limited time by going to opennew.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's O-P-I-N-E-W.com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back-in-stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash steroid to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash steroid to CEO. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting to hear how you have kind of been prioritizing stability. Where does that come from? Um, I guess it's, it's, it's the, the, the polar opposites that my parents are. Mm. And my mom stayed at the same job for 40 plus years, same job, same mm -hmm. commute, um, same floor, and just day in and day out was an extremely dedicated individual to doing something that she really believed in and that that was meaningful right and 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 a lot of people counted on her yeah. and so and my dad he, he was the crazy sob and still is 
right? So <laughs> he's like starting this business, starting that business, you know, goes from construction to food to, you know, limousine companies. Like I, I, I couldn't keep track, but it was fun to right. watch. Yeah. And it's fun to like hang out and do this. And, and, you know, it was, it was like, oh, here comes Andrew's dad. He's a crazy guy, you know, but it was did really, they work but out? Everyone... Did, did all those, is he the kind of guy that is like, you know, just has an idea, kind of runs with it and doesn't really think too much about the numbers and then gets to the end, like a few miles down the road and is like, wait a minute, this maybe is not the best business model like financially. Yeah, he, like, yeah I think he, it would work for a while. And then <laughs> I don't know if he would get bored or the, you know, kind of like the, <laughs> The market would change and then he would switch to something else or yeah. he was doing the restaurant thing and he did that for two or three years and that changed. So he, he, he does it because he sees an opportunity there and he loves the, he loves it. Um, but then he'd kind of like move on. He, he wasn't the kind that would like really focus on really building it out. Like he wouldn't franchise the restaurant or try to build mm. a construction company to, to expand into other cities and, Mm -hmm. and that stuff but you know he he's he enjoyed it and and it also depends on how much you know there's different levels of entrepreneurialism right yeah you might just want to be the entrepreneur that allows you to not sure make ends meet and a little bit more and just have that liberty right just have that freedom to do hey i don't want to work this week or i mean when i had my company back in, in college and then some mm -hmm. like i would find 99 dollars trips to london or to bermuda and i'd tell my friends hey you want to go and no one can go because i had nine to five jobs so i'm like all right see you guys in a week and i just hop on a plane and go and it was cool um did that mean i was saving money away and tucking money into savings and doing 401ks no but i i, I lived basically um in the moment and i was happy and get hit by a bus tomorrow you're good right? Like it's, you don't have regrets in, in that type of sense. So mm -hmm. it really, it really depends on, on what you're looking for at that moment of your life. If you're looking for, you just want that personal freedom mm -hmm. without the additional pressure or the additional upside potential, right? Right. Then you, then you focus on, on sizing your business and your efforts in that kind of way. So you're right. saying like a solopreneur for the lifestyle, yeah. kind of yeah, like my right. dad, he's like an architectural right. photographer. It's like, his, right. he's the expert. He does the jobs and, you know, it's limited to the amount of hours you have in a day, basically. And that's how much you can scale. It's very capped, but it does totally. create a very nice lifestyle. You can take off whenever you want. And it's, you know, it's got its ups and downs, but it's, it is what it is. Um, so what are the other levels? Obviously there's the other end of the spectrum, which is to build a venture backed, you know, billion dollar company. Um, what's right. in the middle? I don't know if there really is a middle. I mean, there <laughs> is, but either you're not trying hard enough or, or, or you're just, or you just should probably get a nine to five job. I don't know. I mean, or just, or just be the solo entrepreneur or just be the slow, solo entrepreneur. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine. But what's the point of kind of puttering growth if you're not going to really go for it. I mean, there is the middle, which is like, you might be capped because of a market space issue or, you know, what you're selling is only, you know, it's a very niche market. So you're not going to be flying in a G5, but you'll be fine and you'll get the Land Rover, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there is a market. It just depends on someone's mentality of, of, of what they want to get out of life. And, you know, do they want to, you know, were they dreaming of a Lamborghini since they were a kid and they still want to have one, you know, then they're going to really try, right? Or, yeah. or they're going to pivot and they're going to jump out of whatever they're doing because they're like, you know what, this doesn't have as much potential and I'm more ambitious. And they're just more ambitious people financially, right? And yeah. other people might find something and just get a ton of satisfaction of, of running a, a daycare, a camp or something, which has good residual income. It's doing something really awesome. And they're doing really well. Maybe they just want to have three or four. Maybe they want to. So there, I, I guess there is a middle ground that it, it there there are there are like lots of middle ground. I can I can be extreme and say there's only one way or another, right? Right. But there is a there is a kind of this comfort zone where you can balance some personal and business and still you know and 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 still do really well. So I yeah. think it's, it's kind of what, what path you choose. And, and I believe most people are pretty smart enough to know that, you know, what they could potentially make, um, you know, they can make low to mid 
six figures and be like, you know what, that's all I ever need in life. And that could mm-hmm. be, to- and they're totally happy and like, and feel like they hit a grand slam and, and for them they did. Right. right. And then yeah. you have other people that are just like, that's not enough, you know, and then people yeah. are going to think that those people are greedy, but it just, there's, I, you know, it really, it really just depends on, on the individual and what kind of like work to live, live to work type of things you can consider it, or it's kind of like, what do you want to achieve before you sit in that rocking chair and and, and sip some tea on the por- on the porch? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Looking at the geese out the window. Right. Um, <laughs> So noise is, um, you were there for eight years. That's a really long time. And having a company that is, you know, you went through an aqua hire, that really is, sounds like it was a very successful partnership. Um, I think that a lot of times aqua hires acquisition, sometimes it's just like not a great fit long-term. That's a very long time to stay at a company in general, let alone the fact that it was, you know, you having your own company as an entrepreneur to now working for someone else at, you know, their company and helping them grow their business business. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that experience? Yeah, because you kind of feel at first, you know, if, if you're like me, and you were doing your own thing for a decade, and you're Mm -hmm. like, all right, now I'm going to do this. Personally, I went through a feeling like, am I a loser? (laughs) (laughs) Like, right? Like, honestly, it's kind of like, wait a minute. I just, I just talked about how you either go for the G5, or or you're, or, or you're just a solo entrepreneur, right? So I, 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 I just joined someone, someone else's company after being that guy that, that would do whatever, kind of go whenever. And, right. and you were aiming for the G5, right. And yeah. it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, totally, and that happens totally. a lot. Yeah. Yep. 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 And it, you know, so I, but it was also kind of the time, it was just a timing thing too. And what I needed in my life right then and what, you know, and it was a personal decision. Right. So I was like, okay, I do want to get married. I do want to have some stability here. Mm-hmm. I don't want my stress that I'm used to, to be on someone else as much. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and, um, yeah. And I think learning to manage that stress just comes with experience, right? Where right, you're kind of right. like able to take a step back and maybe your experience that noise maybe helped to adjust that, you know, readjust that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the noise has it had its ups and downs, mostly ups and we were acquired twice. Um, and that was a lot of fun. So the reason I went with those guys is that we were small. It was about eight or nine of us um, when I joined. And then when we ended up selling, we were around 40 to 50. Then when we got sold again, we were around 150 people. Mm-hmm. My, um, I really enjoyed the people there. They're some of my, my greatest friends now. Um, the former CEO founder who I, um, who I worked alongside with, you know, the longest out of anyone in my professional career now is Noah Kerner, he's the CEO of Eggcorns, and they're about to do a $2 billion SPAC that they announced. It's crazy. Oh, wow. Cool. So it's so like, cool. you know, you get to work with some really fun people. You get to do some yeah. some great things. Best moment, best day of work in my life was actually when I was at Noise. Um, and we had made a crop circle for Chevrolet. And that was just totally awesome. So it's like things that you don't think you, you know, you don't imagine. Did you say crop that, circle? Yeah. So what is that? So it's, you know, we found a, um, a cornfield. They were promoting the HHR vehicle that I don't think they make it anymore. Oh, wait, is that that thing where it's like a circle and all the crops are like flat and looks like something like a spaceship landed on it? Yes, yes, yes. So we, um, (laughs) well, we did the letters HHR in a cornfield in Connecticut and flew over it in a helicopter, which just happened to be perfect timing, perfect place after we're done with making this crop circle thing. And um, yeah, but it was a lot of fun. So um, the the experience at Noise. So yeah, I went from going feeling like I'm kind of a loser to having a great support system. Like Andrew, no, this is like this is just this is a perfect opportunity for you, yeah. right? Yeah. To you know, let's see what we can learn here. Let's see what we can contribute here. And I ended up contributing a lot, so much so that we we're able to sell that company and and everyone did well and and all those types of things to you know, giving me options for what I wanted to do next in my career. That's great. And it looks like you went off to um, create a peer-to-peer recruiting platform, um, but the business was sold in a year. Can you talk about building Vouch? Yeah. I mean, that was just a a little idea because I've always, the part I liked about the business at Noise, and I think just in business in general, it's funny because I'm in recruiting again now, is connecting people and helping people find jobs. Like if you think about it, when you ask someone to come work for you, you're, you're asking them to take a, take a big leap of faith, leave mm-hmm. potentially something that's really stable, something that, you know, or, or pass up on another opportunity and, and put, put their, 
their life and their future, um, part of it at least, right? In, yeah. in, and, and trust in you. And so when I would have people come work for me and work with us at Noise, that was like, I believed in that company so much. It was such an easy sell. It wasn't a sell. It's like, I, I you know, for the right people, it was an amazing time, right? It was amazing. And so, and I wanted to be able to share that, but I also knew how impactful that decision could be on someone positively or negatively, if it's not the right choice. And it wasn't the right choice for everybody, right? And so recruiting was always something that in the interview process and all that was something that I always kind of spent extra time with. And so vouch, but the one thing that, the one thing that always was a rub was recruiters, recruiting fees, and people that were just essentially almost like real estate agents, you do get, you know, a handful of good ones, mm-hmm. but you get a bunch of them that just don't really take the time to learn about you and they just, or what your needs are or what's yeah. best for you. And they want to make a commission. And so Vouch was basically the anti-recruiter solution, which was a peer-to-peer recruiting platform that was built um, based on an open API that LinkedIn had at the time and then ended up shutting down like right before we launched. So oh, no. <laughs> that, 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 that kind of sucked. Fun that kind of sucked for a minute. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we did it, we sold off some of the assets that we built and things like that. And that was that, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a cool little time for a minute. Interesting. And then you went into financial management for agencies. How did that come about? Yeah, so that that brought me back to my noise days where I was a CFO um, managing finances, and I and I would get a lot of emails and people on LinkedIn saying, "Hey, can you help me with my finances? Can you help? You know, can you know any accountants? We don't want to hire a CFO." Right. That was essentially a part-time CFO role, and then I ended up hiring a few people and doing that. I never felt that that business would be some crazy gangbuster thing, but it was something that brought me back to my um, almost like a solo uh, solo days, right? Yeah. Um, where I can, hey, I'm gonna go have these client meetings. I'm gonna like not have client meetings. I'm gonna go take this, but you know, keep residual income and then create some profit share models where if a, if an agency does, you know, over a certain amount, you can get paid more. And so that that business it was well. And then I was able to hire a few people to start working for me over there. Um, and then what happened is um one of my clients ended up saying, Andrew, we really want to hire you. Like, come on, like, come over here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they were taking up more and more time. And at the same time, I had this idea to build Odomont. And so, and I had started on that. So already. is that another aqua hire that happened? Which one? From Optimization Partners. You were doing this financial management for, you uh, know, outsourced yeah, I, CEO, I, CFO I, stuff. I ended up um, selling it off to one of my partners. Um, to go manage. So I stopped uh, getting involved in that because I just didn't have the time. So the question or the opportunity came up to go work at Bayard, which is kind of going back to the full time like type of job um, versus kind of this flexible optimization partners. And that business was doing well, but I was essentially juggling three jobs at that time where I was juggling optimization partners, Bayard, which was still a client of mine. And I was the consultant there but it was taking up more and more time. Plus I was launching this pizza sauce idea, right? Or uh-huh. pasta sauce idea. So, it, and and have the wife and two kids at home. So at some point, if you want to have the wife and two kids still at home, you can't do three other full-time jobs, right? Basically. <laughs> it's a little challenging. They yeah, might get a little so, upset. Yeah, they definitely, they were starting to forget my name and that's not oh, cool. Oh no. So, yeah, so you got it. So I had to, so I just decided, I said, let's give up one. Let's give up the optimization partners. Let me have a conversation with, with my biggest client mm-hmm. and say, Hey, I'm cool. Let's do this. And because I thought I can add value and, and that ended up, you know, and, and still works out really well. I said, but I have this little pasta sauce thing on side called Odomont. I got to be able to work on it. And they said, fine. Nice. So, um, and we're basically still in that. Yeah. I mean, we're still in that relationship so far as we took that 98 year old family owned business Bayard and and we sold it this past January to a private equity firm oh, wow. who has been super awesome. And they've allowed me to continue to do um, Bayard, but also do my five to nine job, which is, which is Odomont. Awesome. And so let's talk about Odomont. Um, what was that aha moment that you had um, to, that you kind of realized this is what I want to start building next? I mean, it's very different than the paths you've been on. You've been in a lot <laughs> of different agency, you know, yeah. you have an agency mm-hmm. background. So why did you decide to create a product and how did it come about? 
Right. I guess it it really came about because my passion, I've been in all kinds of businesses. And at one point, I even had a, a, a day trip company called Escape Route Tours that would take people out of New York City for the day or, you know, do hiking and biking and paintball and all that. But, you know, so I've always been about two things. I've always been about food. I've always loved food as a kid. I've loved food growing up. At one point, I had six barbecues in my backyard here in Brooklyn. So, and I'm, I'm not in like some you know, I'm not out in the suburbs or anything. This is like, right. That's not a very big backyard. I'm sure. No no matter where you are in Brooklyn, it's not a big backyard. Yeah. So, um, so, and then I went for the seventh, my wife told me to get out of here. She, and then I was like, okay, I I sold like five of them on Craigslist, which is crazy. If you think about people literally buy anything on Craigslist, including used barbecues. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, so I've always had that love of food. My grandparents used to have a deli in the Bronx, my dad with the restaurant, my mom, everyone just, we always cook. Everyone loves to cook. My sister and brother-in-law work at Per Se. It's a Thomas Kelly restaurant here in the city. So we all just were in the food world a lot. Mm-hmm. And so Odama came about because of my love of cooking. And just I was just making another meal one night, um, as well as the love for my family. Um, and so just wanting to help my daughter eat healthier meals, help my family eat better. I, I cook a lot. Um, still do every weekend. I'm making the lunch every every morning. I make breakfast, fresh pancakes, crepes, whatever we're making that day. And um, during the weekends, I'll, I have time to do the lunches and dinners too. You know, and so I was making a pizza one night for my daughter, and just wanted to honestly just make her a pizza sauce, but have it be more nutritious. So I was like, let me see what we got in the fridge. Ended up steaming up some carrots and some beets, and I was like, she was in the living room and hanging out, and she. Didn't, see what I was doing to the sauce, but I was just throwing in veggies and steaming them, pureeing them. And and then she ended up eating it. And I said, all right, it's dinner time. And and she said, dad, I like this. I want more. I want more. And I said, huh. I was like, and a little light bulb went off. And I said, okay, I love making (laughs) Uh food. I Uh am a parent that just wishes I didn't have to spend three hours to make this, but I feel really good about her eating it. But is there a hack, a life hack here? And that's when the 20 years of marketing and brand building and the brand ambassadors starts whirling around in your head, right? Yeah. So I spend a lot of my career building brands for Unilever, for Intel, for all these big things, you know, but how much good is selling shampoo doing for the world, right? Right. And I, but I, but there's a lot of, but it's not easy to sell shampoo because there's so many options out there. And like, you know, how do you market that? How do you speak to it? How do you brand it? How do you how do you drive drive sales? So a lot of so there that was really the aha moment when I made that meal, which was just unintentional. It was an, the most unintentional business um, that you can imagine. Like it was not planned. It wasn't meant for that. And then when she said, "Dad, I want more," that's when a little light bulb went off. And I said, "Wait a minute. Maybe I can go down to the farmers market. Maybe I can make a little bit more of this and do it over there." I then took that idea, and here's I guess one big takeaway because I've had way more ideas than this and maybe some of them could have worked really well. But one of the biggest differences with Odomot was that versus my other ventures or my other thoughts was I didn't hide it. I didn't kind of keep it too close to the chest. Like, like I did with vouch and, and, you know, vouch the recruiting platform. I kept that really close to the chest. The banker would say, what is this account you need to open? I said, you don't need to know. Right, like yeah. the banker is going to steal my idea. Yeah, the difference with with Odomot is when I had that idea, and initially it was called Super Sauce, is that I I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to tell some people about this. I'm going to tell a buddy about this and see what does he think. And I did that before I even really went anywhere at all. And I said, hey, John, I want to I want to show you this this silly idea. And he said, Andrew, this is a really good idea. John ended up introducing me to his stepson. His stepson turns out is a James Beard award-winning chef that co-wrote Modernist Cuisine, 2,500 pages on the science of cooking. And I hired uh, Max Maxime to help me develop the first iteration of, of Odomot. So we ended up working on it for a couple of years together. But that's really when you, the light bulb moment turns into the Yankee Stadium floodlights, right? Because you have this idea but then when the stars start to align and you're like, wait a minute, like I had this concept and I have the branding. Now I have another part of the puzzle, which is someone that understands the science of cooking um, to really bring this all together right, mm-hmm. um, with me. 
and that's when you're like, all right, then you start to get excited and then you start your funding and all that, you know, and then you, then you got to get going with it. Well, and I'm curious because naming a company is always pretty tough. It always looks easy from the outside, but I'm sure there's a story, especially the name Audemars, Audemars, it's tomato backwards. So yes. how did you come mm -hmm. up with that? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I've been in the advertising world for, for so long and you do those whiteboard sessions and you put the easels up and the giant sticky notes and you talk about what is the, you know, what is the purpose of this, this product you're making? And you try to come up with any kind of acronym. And, and honestly, I hated them all. Like I worked with some of my clients because at the time I was also managing um, finances for different creative agencies. So there was no lack of ideas from, from them. Mm -hmm. And so um, honestly, it just, I said, what are we trying to do here? And what we're trying to do is really flip flip this industry backwards. We're trying to turn it, like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to really shake up a really sleepy category, which is tomato sauce and all the pasta sauce aisles, all sea of sameness. And I said, well, let's start by actually telling people what's in our, in our food right on the front. So let's flip the label and put the ingredients on the front. So that's why you see all the beautiful stripes, et cetera, that we, you know, literally they're pictures of the, those stripes are made from the pictures of those foods that we just stretch, zoom into and stretch in Photoshop. So those are like the real, the beets, the carrots, the tomatoes, the sweet uh, onions, the uh, sweet potatoes, everything. Yeah. And so I said, if we're going to flip the label around, what if we just flip the name around too? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know. And, and, and I said, I can kind of pronounce it. It, it seems a little Japanese-y, you, know? <laughs> like, you know, and I thought the SEO has got to be fantastic because I, you know, I don't know how many people are using that. So I, you know, went in, was able to, you know, trademark the name, trademark the label, and then it was, it was really off to the races and it, and it really plays well into, you know, it really explains, you know, the, the origin of, of, of the sauce, which is, you know, we really want to turn, turn things around um, yeah. and what's happening here. And so, it just, it just ended up sticking. So what were some early metrics of success when you, you know, first kind of um, launched, I guess, when, when you kind of had a moment where you're like, I think this is working. This is actually working. I think people like this, you know, yeah. more than just my friends, my daughter, myself. Right, right, right. It's easy to get on one shelf. Like the, the, the local grocery store is going to feel bad for you and be like, Andrew, here you go. You know, like, right, so, right, right. Which, is still a, which is still an exciting moment, you know, even though Joey up the block, was, yeah. you know, has heard about it for six months. And within five minutes of actually bringing him our first jar, you had us up there and it's a ton of fun. You get this rush. You're, you know, it is kind of a softball, right? Yeah. So kind of the, the first, I guess the, the first two, I guess, first initial two I can think of, I mean, and then you just have more and more, but are when you get a phone call from a store, that's like, can we buy your product? That was pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And, that's and really I cool. Thought, when did I that thought, happen? How long after you maybe, launched? Maybe, maybe like a few weeks. And I was like, so, it was so fast. That I was like, how'd you hear about us? Now, yes. I, I, we prepped enough that well before launch, I hired a PR company. Well before launch, I hired, we did our branding and sell sheets. So we were able to hit the ground running and look like a million bucks before we made any money, mm -hmm. before we had one sale. And that was really important. So when we went into market, people took us seriously. Right. right. Um, we had a real website. We able we were able to ship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the the so it was really cool though getting that that call. And it was someone who who um who was the buyer, Jeff, over at um food seller in Long Island City for anyone in New York City. And that's like your it's basically like a Whole Foods of Long Island City, because there's no Whole Foods there. And it's like a super nice story. Now I didn't know I don't live there, I live about a half hour away. And so I thought, okay, this guy must have a small bodega. I don't care. This is exciting. Yes. He's like, bring over a couple of cases. I bring over for a couple of cases. Turns out his wife saw us on Instagram or Facebook or something. Nice. And I go into the store and it's like, after the kids go to sleep, I said, well, can I come over there at 930? Sure, come over, you know. And so I drive over there and I'm like, oh, shoot, this is like really nice. This store. <laughs> You're like, this you is know? a lot bigger than I thought. It's yeah. not some hole in the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, then, and then I was like, oh my God. And so... I was like, this is cool. And then we ended up, he ended up selling it. And a couple of days later, I said, Andrew, bring me 10 cases. Wow. And I was like, holy, and our cases at that point were 12 packs. We since went to six packs because it makes more sense because it allows you to get into more places, et cetera. Just little things you learn along the way. Yeah. Um, and I just remember driving over that night when it was like the reorder, the first reorder. 
and it was like me out of the back of a trunk. I still have pictures of it. And like with the, I had to put the car seat in the back and everything. You know, <laughs> and, the seat. Yeah. and it was like, it was just so exciting. I remember just blasting the Wu-Tang Clan the whole way. Just, <laughs> just, just having so much fun. And then afterwards, like rushing over to Macy's because I wanted to buy my wife her favorite perfume because she's put up with this stuff, you know, for so long. And then making it home at like 11 or 12. I don't even know when it was. And it was like, and it was just cool. Everyone's sleeping. And it's just but like, it's kind of like, you're kind of like, you get, I guess I had my own party to myself yeah, in the car. Right? Little mini celebration. Um, yeah. And so it was like, you know, that that was a kind of a cool, that was certainly a cool moment. The other one was when we went to our first food show. So anyone in food, you have, and if you have a product you believe in, it, and you're ready to produce it, right? Or, you know, about to be ready to, to mass market it, whatever it is. Yeah. I would absolutely be at a trade show be at the fancy food show, be at the plant-based expo, be at a local food trade show where you're going to have buyers walking by mm-hmm. and maybe some consumers. Every buyer is a consumer anyway. Everyone has to shop food no matter who they are, right? Right, right. And look at their reaction. The first show we did was a small show called the Plant-Based Expo. And I think it was actually like April or May of 2019, like a couple months after we launched. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, a really simple booth design, really clean, and I mean, we were just selling pasta sauce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it's a totally different take, veggie loaded, and we were not organic at the time. And the really cool thing is that people loved it. They loved it. And everyone that tells you that, you just get higher and higher. You're right. Like, You're yeah, like, oh my God. And then that first day, like, why you just never want to sleep? Right. 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 It's impossible like, to sleep. Yeah. You're just like, like, uh, this is a waste of time. Like there's yeah. so much to do. Right. And it's like, so you go to these shows and you know, there was just a lot of positivity and there's a lot of annoying questions too. It's like, are you in whole foods? Are you in whole foods? Are you in whole foods? Like, I just launched this damn thing. Like, like whole whole why do you think I'm here? here? Yeah. You think I would be here if we're right. in every store? <laughs> right. So it was, so it was, um, so it was really, it was, it was a cool, experience to get that first call to then you know go to that show to meet other people um to then you know and then just on and on you start to do more shows you meet qbc you meet whole foods so is that, buyers. yeah so it's not where you you said you weren't organic before did people comment on that and did you change to organic because of these shows and the feedback you know when you're when you're young and just starting out to and you're trying to put products out organic is is expensive especially if you're not buying that much, right? right? So our MOQs were like really small, but it was also really expensive just to be, um, just to be conventional. So we weren't organic in the sauce, but it's, we were organic at home. And so I always wanted to make organic, um, make us organic, but it would, we're, we're going to be, I think we launched at like $10 on the shelf, right? Now we're $6.99 nationwide. Um, and so, and we're organic. So once we were able to validate the product, we were able to find a new co-packer that was able to bring our price down, bring our quality up, and have us fully organic for less, right? And so that's that's really key too. Um, when you're building a business, you also want to look at what will your cogs be later on based on certain velocity assumptions, right? And you should be pricing yourself based on those future velocity assumptions, in my opinion. Right. Because if you price yourself on how much it's going to cost you, if you were to go to the grocery store and buy your ingredients, right. Versus, well, what happens when I'm going to buy a 50 pound bag of flour from Costco versus what happens when I have a factory make this that buys 50,000 pounds of flour once a month. Right. Right. Whatever it is. So it's like those prices are, they really change dramatically. And so what you don't want to do, if you really believe you have a great product is overprice yourself because you'll mm-hmm. never know if a consumer was willing to try you um, if you were priced at the point of which, you know, what that equilibrium price or what that ideal price is be that allows you to not just make a profit, but also, you know, bring it at a reasonable cost to the consumer. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. Um, very good tip of advice there. When you were saying before, when you launched, you hired a PR firm, which really helped you get to market guns blazing. Um, how did fundraising fit into that strategy? Yeah, so 
The fundraising really started out friends and family. I think we raised like 38,500 bucks, just friends, family. It was four people, 10, 10, 10, and 8,500 um, to cover some initial R&D costs and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to kind of help prove out the model. And so I really didn't know how fundraising worked. I said, I need to get some funds. I need to hire a lawyer to help me write these agreements. And so I did. Um, and then I realized, okay, we're, we need to kind of do this on an ongoing basis because, you know, to actually go to these trade shows costs a lot of money to, to produce some inventory is going to cost money. You got to have inventory on hand to have something to sell, right. Um, to build the brand, to do this, to do that. Um, you know, and then it just grows And the bigger you want to get, the more money you're going to have to pump into it. Right. Um, if you want to launch a brand ambassador program, and we have about 600 brand ambassadors, um, that's not free to run, but we didn't need it at the beginning, but now we do, right. We weren't running ads online really much in the beginning, but you know, now we do. So the, the fundraising just happened out of necessity because when you're small, you're not going to have velocity. And even when you get bigger, you're still going to need to market and compete on a national level. So yes, we're national with Whole Foods and Sprouts, Wegmans, et cetera, but so are a lot of big conglomerate brands. So is Rayos, so is Unilever, so is et cetera, right? And and they have a lot more money than we do. So you have to be um, ready and able to not just be creative, but but also you got to have a war chest because they'll they're they're going to war against you the same way that that you know you're trying to earn you know room in people's stomachs right right um so when people are out there shopping are they you know when you're trying to convince them well maybe they are going to re- reach for something that they haven't tried before if they see a coupon on there or they heard about it from a friend or they read about it on a on an article so it, it's a constant battle you know it's it's to, to for for brand loyalty out there um, across every category of oat milk that's trying to convince people to ditch the milk and ditch the almond milk for oat milk because they know that their lifetime value of a customer is X dollars. And so they're willing to spend X amount of dollars to acquire that customer just to get that in their mouth for the first time. So, you know, CPG is is really, it, it's, it requires some good funding to get people to actually try a new product, right? And that's something that people don't really realize when you, and especially if you're going to Whole Foods and when you go national, if your velocity is not turning, then there's, why would they keep you on the shelf? Because there's a lot of brands out there that will buy that Super Bowl commercial and just have people at least buy some products, right? And so the nice thing is after the first year of being in Whole Foods, they actually came back and said, hey, we're keeping you here. We like you. Can you actually bring us another sauce? Can you bring us a pizza sauce? And we're going to take that nationwide too. That's and great. So, and I know you yeah. launched nationwide. I mean, this was, I think you were saying before, like before we hopped on here, less than yeah. six months into your business. And, and most retailers will try to test a product and do regional rollouts and like start small, but they went right. straight for the big guns and, and took you guys national right away. How yeah. did, can you talk about how that happened? How did you build that relationship with Whole Foods? How'd you meet them? You know, for yeah. all the aspiring entrepreneurs out there who want to get their products and Whole Foods. How did this happen for you? Right. I mean, this goes back to to just having a great team. And, you know, it was a combination of things. I mean, we had our, we had our formula, we had our product, and we were ready for scale. And I think that's number one. If you want to go national, you not only have to, you have to be ready for it. And that just doesn't mean, hey, have a few bucks in the bank. That means be ready from a production standpoint, be ready to service them. Be ready to understand how freights work, how Unify works. Like you have to have a really great team of people and you have to assemble essentially an all-star team of, of experienced people that can that have walked the walk before, right? Um, or else they're going to treat you like a, you know, someone who might be a little bit more risky and maybe they, you know, justifiably would give you a chance, but but at a, at a smaller level, right? Um, we met Whole Foods at a trade show. We met Whole Foods because we hired a sales broker who happened to know a buyer there and we're able, we're lucky enough that the buyer came by our booth, we were able to chat and they invited us to pitch them. So that was a step one is that we, we brought a sales broker on early in the, in the process who's 
who has relationships that has you know met these types of these people and, and that whole foods before um at the same you know at the same time we're also increasing our production capabilities reducing our cogs so we're starting to get ready to be able to deliver on a national on a national level right and so that that also helped and then and then we just went out there and went down to texas and, and pitched and um and thankfully the pitch went well they called us a few days before christmas and it was it was a pretty awesome Christmas present because they said, hey, Andrew, we're going to, you know, we're going to take you, um, Global is going to take you on. And that means that, you know, when you're global with Whole Foods, it means you're, you're national, which was pretty sweet. Yeah, that's that's a very big deal. And congrats on that. That's really awesome. So being a founder obviously requires a lot of persistence, determination. Um, there's a ton of challenges that we've hit along the way. Um, I know you mentioned one before we hopped on about a co-packer, things going wrong. Can you kind of talk about some of the challenges that you've had to overcome in building your business? Yeah, I mean, the the, the key one in the beginning is, is really finding some the people to partner with, and that could be your your coworkers, your co-founders, or you know who's going to produce your product if you're in a CPG world like me. Um, and so our first co-packer was based out in in the Midwest, and we had um, we made sure that we flew out there for every single production run, and you know not really understanding the space or being there, um, it was really key because there could be variances in your product from what you had in mind or what you test kitchened with them. So we went out there for test kitchen development. We went out there for the actual product practice runs. We went out there for the actual production runs. And we would see like these labels would come out twisted. They would come out wrinkled. And I would literally be pulling off the line. So things that, you know, were premium brands. And if you're going to be a premium brand, then you better look like a million bucks coming out of that production right. line. And that's not something that everyone, you know, everyone's bar is set to a different level, right? So what they're about to put in the box, I said, I'm not buying that. Take that out of the box, put it back on the line again, right? And so, you know, it's, you have to really be anal and really protective of your brand. It's like being protective of your kids, right? And, and people might not understand it, but a lot of people will. And um, you just have to be there every second of the day until you have people that are as crazy as you to, to work alongside of. Yeah. And you're doing this all part-time. I mean, you have a full-time job, nine to five. How have you been able to balance both? And is this something you would kind of recommend to other founders thinking of building a business? Um, without knowing the other founders, I, I can't <laughs> say if this is for everybody. Um, it, it is a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. You have to be the kind of person that just likes staying busy and and can effectively contribute to both sides of the table, right? Yeah. If I didn't feel that I can effectively contribute to both sides of the table, if I didn't have great teams on both sides of the table, I could not do this. So we have yeah. a creative agency, a broker, a social media agency, um, on down the line, an EA that that helps me with a ton. There's just there's a lot of a full time ops person who essentially runs the business. So I'll come in for for you know, sales meeting strategy, marketing ideas, things like that. I mean, I still get hands-on, but um, it is at a limited capacity, but it's it's where, where it matters. Um, the nine to five job is not an easy one. It takes a lot of time. We're growing at a record pace. And so I, my head needs to be there, right? Um, and so it's, it's, you just, you need to have the right people. You have to have an understanding um, professional and personal network, right? Um, I'm kind of known to be late to things, unfortunately, I enjoy always work on that because I'm trying to just stack my calendars. But um, yeah, you just have to, you have to be someone that's been, been used to juggling life and, uh, and you have to enjoy being that clown. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people, you know, I think that are waiting to figure out when they should make that move, when they should be full-time on their company. So I think that your perspective of you, you know, taking the different route of you've found a way to not have to do that, I think is a mm -hmm. really interesting um, thing. So I appreciate you kind of going there and sharing that. But speaking of being late, you're late, I know for a meeting right now. So I think <laughs> we should probably get going. Um, before we wrap up, do you have any other final advice for any of the listeners out there thinking of building a business? Yeah, I mean, it just, you don't want to regret not taking a chance on something when you're 80 years old, mm -hmm. right? If it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, great. And it's totally okay. Like, I just don't want to live my life regretting that I didn't take a chance on something because yeah. you'll never know, right? Yeah. And guess what? I've had more more misses 
then I've had hits. And so, you know, just keep on swinging, just, just keep on swinging and keep on doing it and make sure it's fun. Just make sure you're having some fun out there. Yeah. Awesome. Keep on climbing. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much, Lee. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.